Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. On a mission to bring the benefits of sport to kids everywhere, they go beyond technology to provide leaders with professional development and relationship building, and to work with sports-based organizations to address issues of accessibility and equality. To learn more, find them at League Apps com or as league apps on all of the social networks now here's the host of the show longtime soccer broadcaster and voice of united soccer coaches dean linky i am dean linky and this is the united soccer coaches podcast presented by league apps this entire show is devoted to the 21st century model on april 13 that's just around the corner the ncaa division one council will be voting to approve a fall spring season that would go into effect beginning the fall of 2023 for men's Division I soccer. Maryland three-time national champion head coach Sasso Swarovski has been spearheading the reform movement with a group of superstar head coaches across the NCAA. From the ACC, UNC's Carlos Samuano playing a big role, as well as Mike Brizendine and Mike Noonan. From the Pac-12, Jeremy Gunn has stepped up in a big way. From the Big Ten, Todd Yegley, among other coaches, including Sasho, has also stepped up. And there are coaches in the mid-majors that are stepping up in a big way. Some of them were also on a call held earlier this week, led by the aforementioned Sasho Sorosky. So what is the 21st century model? Well, first off, it is, quote, for the players and for the game, end quote. It is about improving the student-athlete experience at the D1 men's soccer level, the student-athlete wellness at the D1 men's soccer level, and the growth of the game. Full support already from United Soccer Coaches, the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12 with more joining in. This vote on April 13 will be the key to implementing the 21st century model. Again, it is based on expanding the current calendar, which is late August into mid-December, to late August, early September, all the way to the end of May, early June. It'll be a redistribution of competitions over two semesters. Six fewer matches in the fall, four additional matches in the spring, postseason move from November, December to May, June. It will reduce midweek games to just a maximum of three midweek games through the academic year compared to six to eight midweek games in one semester. It will also allow for athletic breaks. Fall competition starts second week in September and ends prior to Thanksgiving. Holiday plans without competition conflicts. November to January, significant time for final exam prep and J-term classes. And then the summer, May, June to late August, summer school, internships, study abroad, work, and summer teams. The benefits are clear. A balanced schedule, physical, mental, emotional health benefits through balanced training, competition, and rest recovery schedule. Reduce missed classes. Reduce midweek games and distribution of missed classes over two semesters to enhance academic concentration. Graduation retention. Students encouraged to use four years to complete their degree instead of rushing to complete in seven semesters. Transition to college in critical first year. Uninterrupted first year orientation. Campus life acclimatization period before first match. Full year to immerse in college soccer affords younger players sufficient time to adjust and contribute an extensive first semester final exam prep period with limited soccer activity. The 21st century model is all about the student and the athlete. 
Already, 86% of current men's Division I soccer players have signed a petition to say yes to Proposal 2019-90. The National Division I Student Athlete Advisory Committee supports Proposal 2019-90. National 1A FAR Group supports Proposal 2019-90. Soccer Athletic Trainer Society supports Proposal 2019-90. Why? Because they compared the 21st century model to the current model. And the 21st century model allows for, again, preseason acclimatization period schedule, weekly schedule balance for personal, academic, and athletic needs, weekly training to game ratio, game schedule, rest and recovery time between games, return to play after injury schedule, class attendance, fewer missed classes, championship experience, May, June over November, December, and vacation breaks. The benefits of the 21st century model continue with enhanced athletic experience, increased community engagement and improved fan experience, and a true summer break. Dr. Vonda Wright, an associate professor and orthopedic surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh, said this, quote, As we evaluate why we push our young athletes in a compressed season, we should look beyond the easy answers of staff convenience or university policy and consider, most importantly, the health care of our young people. I am encouraging us all to do better, end quote. Dr. Gary Bennett, the assistant athletic director at Virginia Tech, would go on to say, quote, By spreading the season over the course of the academic year, student-athletes will likely experience a greater sense of balance, which should lead to greater achievements academically and in their sport. With that as the backdrop, Sasha Sarosky, the three-time national champion head coach at the University of Maryland, has chaired the 21st Century Model Committee since it was created several years ago. Joining him on a call held earlier this week is Carlos Samuano from the University of North Carolina. Rob Kehoe, the former director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches, and Patricia Hughes, the new director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches, as well as USA and international superstars Alexi Lalas from Fox Sports and Taylor Twelman from ESPN. Also included on this show via the call held earlier this week, led by Sasho, are select members of the media. We will have the entire call and the questions and the answers, as well as words from Alexi and Taylor Twelman on this week's United Soccer Coaches podcast. And it starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, League Apps. We bet you didn't get into this business for the back office duties. That's why we created League Apps, the industry's leading youth sports management platform. So you can spend less time with busy work and more time doing what you love. League Apps provides organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by League Apps. Once again, here's the host of the show, Dean Linky. Thank you again, League Apps, for your tremendous support of the United Soccer Coaches podcast and for allowing us to bring this special edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast, covering the 21st century model, a fall-spring season for men's Division I soccer. It is so important right now because coming up on April 13, the NCAA Division I Council will be voting to approve a fall-spring season. 
Maryland head coach Sasso Sarosky, a three-time national champion head coach, has been spearheading this campaign with great support from other superstar coaches, including Carlos Samuano, a national champion head coach at the University of North Carolina. Rob Kehoe, the former director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches, continues to offer his support, as well as Patricia Hughes, the new director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches. They are all on this call, along with superstars Alexi Lalas, the former World Cup star who is now a media darling with Fox Sports, and Taylor Twellman, who played for Sasha Sarosky at Maryland, went on to a great pro career and a national team career, and now is the top man for ESPN Soccer's coverage, are also on today's show. With that, we turn it over to Sasha as he led this week's special Zoom with select members of the media, as well as Alexi and Taylor. First of all, I want to thank everybody for joining the call. This is quite an esteemed group of national soccer media. We're very humbled by your presence and willingness to listen in on our journey about the 21st century model. My name is Sasha Swarovski. I'm the head men's coach at the University of Maryland, and I've been the chair of this 21st century model committee since its inception in 2013. I'd like to introduce some of the members of, the, of our committee here that are on the call so that you can understand who they are for some Q&As after the call gets started. The first person is, and maybe you can wave, is Rob Kehoe. Rob Kehoe was a National Programs Director from 2008 to 2021 with the old NSCAA and the current United Soccer Coaches. He stayed on in a volunteer capacity to help guide us through this time. He has strong relationships that he has developed over time and very valuable. Rob also is the executive chair of the ICAC, that's the Intercollegiate Coaches Association groups from all the different sports and the guide there. Also, Trish Hughes. Trish is uh, the current United Soccer Coaches Program Director and started here in 2021, and she's been an incredible asset uh, to move things forward. Uh, we also have Carlos Samoano. Carlos is the current chair of the Division I Coaches Group and has been a real champion, not only in the ACC, but nationally on the 21st century model. Jim DeRose is on the call from Bradley. Jim is the mid-major representative on the national committee for us as well. So he represents the voice of the mid-majors on the call as well. Jeremy Gunn from the Pac-12 and Todd Yeagley may also be joining the call along with Mike Noonan. So those are some of the other people, but you've got the main people on this call from the 21st Century Model Committee. So look, let me just uh, very quickly go through the purpose of this call. First of all, the purpose of this call is to really inform you to publicize where we are with this journey and to see some questions you may have to answer along the way. The background and journey of this proposal, I'll explain very briefly. We'll explain the voting process. We'll get into Q&A. We've sent a lot of information to you. Hopefully you've had a chance to review it and see it. We do have an additional PowerPoint if we need to reflect back on a couple of points as you ask some questions. But let me just give you a quick uh, journey on this proposal. Let's just go over some soccer truths in our life that we've been dealing with in college soccer for forever. The truth, the preseason is way too short. The regular season is way too compressed. 20 games in about 10 weeks, a game every 3.5 days doesn't work. Our championships have been very poorly attended, probably due to bad weather, but also, quite frankly, a lack of media coverage due to an overcrowded sports calendar. Mid-November to mid-December simply doesn't work. The other simple statement is that the format of a traditional season, non-traditional season is outdated, archaic. We've known that for a long time. At the very beginning of this century, in the year 2000, there was a group of coaches that attempted a similar two-semester model approach. We floated to the NCAA membership, to our member institutions, and we're basically told to go away. 
the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee looked at it and said, nah, and that was it. There was not a single member, a soccer player on this national committee in 2000. Three years later, when I became the chair of the Division I coaches, after many years of frustration, seeing nothing go, and really going into a very challenging time, you know, MLS was struggling at the time, but they were taking over quite a bit of television coverage. My first goal was to get college soccer on television and also to get a voice to represent us within a coaches association. So we partnered with Fox Soccer Channel. We had a game of the week. We hired the first college program director, which was a guy named Pat Britz, which later became Rob Kehoe. We finally had a voice and we were able to push on some areas that we felt we needed to, to do that stuff. Then a turning point came in October, 2013. The NCAA finally came out with a proclamation centered on student athlete time demands and began to look for ways to build more balance to the student athlete. So this initiative by the NCAA was consistent with our goals for Division I men's soccer, and we seized the opportunity to revive our discussions, develop a new holistic playing and practice season. In a sense, the NCAA offered us a promissory note, and we said, all right, let's see if we can cash in on it. At the January 2014 convention, myself and Rob Keogh presented a two-semester championship model idea to our coaching community. Though it was well-received, it was also tempered with a mix of pessimism that related to reflection on previous efforts and the institutional nature of the, of the NCAA not allowing for change. However, over the next six months, committees were formed and an unprecedented collaboration of ideas came together. Coaches, student athletes, administrators, all of us chimed in and we worked very hard to make it happen. Also around this time, the Power Five conferences had also been frustrated with NCAA change and they sought more autonomy. They eventually got it in the form of a more weighted vote within the legislative process. This illuminated our path forward, as we know we must get the Power Five conferences to become sponsors. I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I had strong ties in two of the three major conferences, the Big Ten and the ACC, having coached in the ACC from 1993 to 2013 for 20 years and starting the Big Ten in 2014. We thought we would have to get one or both of these conferences to step up. We also knew that the Pac-12 was crucial and we needed to get them on board. The original committee of coaches was Elmar Bolovich in the ACC, Kevin Grimes in the Pac-12, and myself, along with Rob Keel. When Elmar moved to Creighton, Carlos Samuano seized the opportunity and assumed leadership in the ACC, while Jeremy Gunn jumped on board to help with Kevin Grimes at the Pac-12. As I mentioned in the introduction of our committee, others like Todd Yadley, Mike Noonan, Jay Vidovich, Mike Brizendine, along with Jim DeRose, have also been major factors and done a lot of work from the ground up. Now, during this time, also Rob Keogh did a magnificent job of communicating with our coaching community, but also developed strong ties and inroads within the NCAA leadership. Due to Rob's work, in February of 2015, the NCAA Sports Science Institute, SSI, held its first ever deep dive event of any sport aimed at the time demands of college soccer student athletes and looking for what could we do that's better. It was an awesome event and brought in soccer sports science leaders from the US Major League Soccer, FIFA, as well as international practitioners and national representatives from US soccer all over the place from schools, conferences. And this really helped build our confidence that we're heading in a good direction. Hey, we're onto something that makes sense. Even the NCAA Sports Science Institute thought it made sense. Over the next three years, the model became refined, our committee grew, and then came the push to get someone to officially sponsor it. In February of 2019, it became official. Big 10 ADs were unanimously supportive. The AC had majority support and the Pac-12 also joined in as a supporting sponsoring member. Now, this was what I call the alliance before what you may have heard recently as the alliance between the Big Ten, ACC, and Pac-12. Now, this was a massive win for all of us and set us down a real path of optimism for a vote in April 2020. 
Unfortunately, due to COVID, our vote was delayed for two years, and now here we are, days away from our vote on April 13th. Soon I'll go into the vote a little bit, but I just want to give you a quick journey of how we got there. It took us three years within the Big Ten to come to a unanimous consensus, same in the ACC and the Pac-12. But we eventually found a way to go path forward. Now, I will explain in a few minutes about the voting structure, and I'll explain how it's actually done, because people have a misconception. You know, the NCA has a bunch of people in Indianapolis, and they, you know, people that work there full-time do the votes. No, it's done by membership representation, and it's done by conferences weighing in. Speaking of weighing in, when we return, Sasso Sorosky turns over the quote microphone to U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer and Fox Sports analyst Alexi Lalas, as well as former Maryland superstar, professional superstar, and also fellow U.S. national team member Taylor Twelman, who is now the top man covering soccer for ESPN. Alexi Lalas and Taylor Twelman, their thoughts on college soccer and the merits of the 21st century model after these messages. Performance analysis is now recognized as having a crucial role to play in any coaching program. The United Soccer Coaches Performance Analysis Level 1 Special Topics Diploma will provide coaches with real-world examples of how analysis is being used to enhance the individual player development process and maximize team performance. Additionally, successful candidates will achieve Level 1 accreditation as an Applied Performance Analyst from the International Society of Performance Analysis of Sport. Register now by visiting the Master Course Schedule on unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back again to this very special edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by League Apps. As you've heard, on April 13th, coming up, the NCAA Division I Council will be voting to approve a fall spring season, the 21st century model for men's soccer. Earlier this week, Sasho Sorosky, Carlos Samuano, Rob Kehoe, Trish Hughes, and some other great coaches that are pushing the 21st century model got together for a Zoom with select media members and celebrities like Alexi Lalas and Taylor Twelman from Fox Sports and ESPN, respectively. As we rejoin this week's show, Sasho Sorosky turns it over to Alexi Lalas and Taylor Twelman. We have two great journalists, celebrities, media personalities, and what I'd like to do is ask both Alexi Lalas and Taylor Twelman, the original redhead, bighead gang, to offer their thoughts on the merits of the model on how they see it from the outside and the importance of the model. So, Alexi, if I can ask you to chime in with some of your thoughts, and then we'll go with Taylor, and I thank you for being on. So go ahead, Alexi, if you can chime in. Thanks, Coach. Look, I know most of you here on this call, and to a certain extent, we're you know preaching to the choir here, but and I'm just going to reiterate what I said. My, my life changed because of college soccer, and I know that that pathway is while not completely disappearing, certainly narrowing with the change of soccer in the U.S. And while we concentrate from a soccer development perspective on that 90 minutes, the other 22 and a half hours is very, very important because we are creating what I like to think is not just better soccer players, but better men and women that are going to ultimately lead not just our country, but countries uh, around the world. And oftentimes they find that through that experience uh, through college. It's easy for me to say that ultimately when it comes to the realities of the development of soccer players in the U.S., they are looking elsewhere. And yet we have this, this infrastructure, this existing infrastructure that I think is incredibly valuable. And 
while it has been tapped in the past, right now it remains untapped. And so this type of project and this type of change we know can fundamentally change the perception of college soccer. And from my perspective, in terms of developing soccer players, change that development course and open up that narrowing that's happening, uh, happening out there. You know, I think to myself, and we know that the NCAA is a behemoth and hats off to everybody, including you, Sasha, and everybody out there that's been pushing this boulder for, for so long. And we know <laughs> that the NCAA is not influenced or dictated by soccer. We get that. Uh, we understand that. I, I think to myself, what would happen if the NFL suddenly, which we know almost exclusively uses the NCAA as their farm system, what if they said we're playing a 34 game season and we're playing all the way through the year, how that would change, how, how that would change the thinking. And yet when I look at this split season, it just spreads things out as opposed to adding more uh, because it's important. Yes, they are. Yes, they are student athletes, but I want as these players are growing, these soccer players are growing for them to at least see that pathway as viable. And the things that we can do to change that as difficult as they may be, I think we can do things that are not only going to produce better soccer players, but ultimately are going to produce better uh, young men and women for the experience that they have. But you know, the, the realities uh, such as laid out and everybody has laid out there are not going anywhere. As a matter of fact, they're only going to get, I guess, worse, for lack of a better word, going forward if, if something isn't done. So I, I wholeheartedly uh, support this if it's going to mean that at least young men and women are looking at the college pathway in a different way than they, uh, than they have been in the recent past here, because there is that pathway to whatever they want to do, whether it's on the soccer field or off the soccer field. Thank you, Lex. Taylor? Very well said, Alexi. Uh, per usual, um, I'm following you, so that's always fun. I guess there's two things that Alexi and I have been aligned with uh, from the beginning, from the moment we started our, or I started my media career with Alexi. Uh, the more, the merrier. The more inclusive, less exclusive this is and this sport is, the better it is not only for the sport, but more importantly for people, for both men and women to grow. College soccer is vital vital for the growth of soccer in this country if we're going to do it right the infrastructure is there for player development and everything secondly and most importantly is that the ncaa and care less what sasha is going to try to tell me but they have looked at men's and women's soccer as if it's still back in the 1960s and 70s when my father was playing at siu edwardsville they haven't changed it They've never looked at it and said, we need to change it. They've changed basketball. They've changed football. They've changed volleyball. They've changed golf. They've changed baseball. They've changed every other sport, but they haven't looked at soccer. And so, Sasha, for you and your group to even take this head on, that's why I'm in this. There's three reasons why, and I wrote them down just so we are, I'm very clear and concise why I'm behind this. First and foremost, everyone knows my passion and my goal in life, student-athlete welfare comes first. To ask someone, he or she, to play a game Friday, then Sunday, is irresponsible. It is completely against any kind of ability for a player or a parent to properly assess a head injury. So how many college athletes are going through head injuries where they get a concussion Friday, and yet they're not properly assessed and evaluated, and then are forced to play a game Sunday? That's first and foremost, this improves student-athlete welfare. Secondly, I don't think the NCAA is doing a good enough job allowing the Sasha Sarovskis, the Mike Noonans, the coaches of this world, and in this country, on the men's side and the women's, I'm sorry if I remissed any big names, but player development training ideas. We're not allowing the student athlete 
to one, study any field they want to get into, because when you spread out the condensed schedule, you're allowed to take a better class schedule. But more importantly, you're allowed to develop as a player because you have more opportunities to actually develop as a player through training. We've all been there. We've all seen college soccer. If you're playing Thursday, Sunday, you're playing Friday, Sunday, it's impossible to do training. It's impossible to develop a player on, on the field because it's a crash course to try to 20 games in two and a half months. Third and most importantly, it makes the competition better for me. It makes it better because the infrastructure is there. The players are going to be competing when they are at their peak at a higher level because they are training more consistently and they're doing things. So all of that is saying that it makes the product better and it enhances the opportunity for men and women to use student athletics for the ability to develop as a player, but most importantly, as Alexi said, and he said it better than I did, to develop as a person. And so I'm 100% behind it. And quite honestly, if the NCAA is not behind this, I, I think they've got their head in the sand on it. Look, both of you, awesome comments. When we started this whole process, uh, we wanted to make sure this was a holistic model that was for the 5,000 kids playing Division One college soccer every year, not just the 50 that will go professional every year. Uh, we're very careful to do that. We care deeply about player development as coaches and care deeply about helping our players uh, realize their dreams and play for the national teams, professionally, all of those. But this particular model at its core is about the student athlete well-being. It's about developing the whole person during your experience and having the, the best student athlete experience you can have in the sport of soccer with your academic balance and reach your academic goals, having a proper ability to have a social life in college spread out over both semesters. So on all levels, we have thought carefully all, all this. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, we've taken, you know, this archaic traditional season and non-traditional aspect and put it together. And one of the challenges we've had at times People say it's expansionary. Well, if you take two balloons with the same amount of air and you put it into one balloon, you still have the same amount of air. <laughs> this is not expansionary. It's still 132 days, but it's actually using 132 days better than the current model of having 132 days with the compression and then the lack of compression where you can properly do it. Taylor made a good point. We are very frustrated as coaches that we cannot properly train, prepare for games. We are in a constant mode of survival where we are resting as much as possible, getting players just ready to compete. You know, Taylor, the one point you made that we've been very confident, uh, cognizant of is if a player gets injured in the fall, whether it's, it's an ankle injury or it's a hamstring, uh, if you have a hamstring injury, you might miss half your season. If you're out for four weeks, you're missing half of your regular season. An ankle injury, you're doing the same. A head injury, you're doing the same. In other words, players will rush back to injury they will sometimes not be truthful with the coaches, with the sports medicine people, because they don't want to miss games. And it puts the players at big risk at further injury. And the number of soft muscle tissue injuries we deal with and the number of missed games is substantial. On April 13, the NCAA Division I Council will be voting to approve a fall spring season, the 21st century model. When we return, Sasho, Carlos, Rob Kehoe, and Trish Hughes We'll take questions from the media. United Soccer Coaches would like to thank all 2022 convention attendees, exhibitors, presenters, and volunteers for reuniting in Kansas City. 
You can relive all of the special moments from the awards banquet and All-America Ceremony reception by watching the recordings now available on unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org. Remember to save the date for the 2023 convention in Philadelphia, January 11th through 15, 2023. Does it feel like all you're doing to manage your team, club, or league is busy work? If so, League Apps can help you get back to doing what you love, delivering a powerful yet simple youth sports management platform from robust registration and payment tools to automated communications and other software integrations. League Apps saves you time and headaches, less busy work, more time doing what you love. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Welcome back to this very special edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps, reminding you that on April 13, the NCAA Division I Council will be voting to approve a fall spring season, the 21st century model. Leading today's discussion is the longtime coach at Maryland, three-time national champion, Sasha Sarosky. And as we return to the call held earlier this week, Sasha now turns it over to questions from the media. We'd like to get into some questions here. So let's start with Mike Wojtela. That's the first question I see. So Mike Wojtela from Soccer America. Yeah, first of all, Sasha, I got to say, I, I really admire all the work you've done on this. Really fantastic. As someone who's followed the college game for decades and decades and decades, I know what, what you're up against and, and it's, it's amazing. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about how, what had happened since COVID with the, improvis uh, the improvisation of a spring play may have, may have even helped your your effort or the effort of the 21st century model? Good question. I'm going to do the first part of this answer. I'm going to throw it over to Carlos Samuano from the ACC as well, because the ACC did do a modified uh, two-semester model with their league. So I'll, I'll have him chime in on, on what we call the COVID flex <laughs> two-semester model. But I think there was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, when the championship was moved to the spring, basically 11th hour was I think late October, early November, we were, we were told we we're going to have a spring season. So we were all excited and we all had to figure out how we're going to manage that. Um, and at the 11th hour, we answered a lot of questions that have been questions by administrators. Can you share facilities? Can we redistribute our athletic trainers? Can we provide media uh, sports information coverage? So those have been some of the the constant challenges that we've been told. And at the 11th hour, somehow, not only did soccer play in the spring, but there was five other sports. Women's soccer played in the spring, volleyball, field hockey, and even some football teams uh, played in the spring. So we shifted all these sports and somehow we managed to get it done. The most exciting thing about the spring schedule for me was the national championship game between Marshall and Indiana was on a Monday night we're lucky that we played it on a Friday, Monday. So there's one extra day of rest between the semis and the final. And that was massive. The game was also played at seven o'clock at night in 72 degree, perfect weather. It was the first game we allowed fans to come in a game and it was sold out. It was also the highest viewed event on ESPN in our history. It was May 17th, Marshall, Indiana, sold out crowd in Cary, North Carolina, and the highest viewed event. Uh, event this past year that we had between... Uh, Clemson and Washington in the final was one of the lowest viewed events. So it proved exactly what we had been talking about is that our championships are in a terrible time of year, poor weather, crowded sports calendar. And if we, we all know in college sports, you are measured by the success of your championships. So the idea of a spring championship 
is, is wonderful. But I'll let Carlos talk a little bit about what the players and coaches thought about spreading the stuff out, the, the games. Go ahead, Carlos. Yeah, thanks, Sasha. And, and thanks all for joining, um, as well as uh, Taylor and Alexia. I thought what you guys said was so spot on, and it was just, uh, well, it's refreshing to hear that. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to um, to be able to experience you know, what we call the COVID flex, um, which was as close to the 21st century model as we've come, obviously. And um, all the things that um, you've already alluded to, and, and my hopes and my expectations of, you know, getting a 21st century model uh, were very high. And to start with, but then going through the experience, it exceeded my expectations and, and um, as high as they were. Uh, we were able to develop our team uh, in a completely different way uh, by training, uh, by uh, developing them. And, and we were fortunate enough to make the College Cup that year. And we didn't have a team that would have had that opportunity, in my opinion, um, had we had a fall only uh, season, we wouldn't have been able to, to attain those heights. We had some players on that team that year that might, and, and this is spot on. I, I'm not overselling this. We had some players on that team that probably would not have played that season that became the best players on our team by the end of the year. And if you were to ask our group, about the experience, the, I mean, the growth that we're able to have as a team. And, and we talk about this a lot amongst our, our group as well, is that the, the fact that we were able to have the same team two consecutive semesters, that from an experience standpoint alone is your, your, your perception of, of what you just went through, as opposed to the current or the, the system that we've been using where every three months we're changing our roster um, by you know, 10 to 25% and restarting the process. Um, so it was a wonderful experience um, in spite of having to uh, navigate the, the COVID challenges. As I mentioned, the best way I can put it is with as high as my expectations were, um, it, it exceeded um, for every reason that you guys and have already mentioned and that we already um, are hoping for. Right here, Rob Kehoe, the former United Soccer Coaches Director of College Programs and now the Executive Director of the Intercollegiate Coach Association Coalition, jumps in to ask Carlos an additional question. Carlos, can you mention the cost factor? Because that's a question that comes up relating to your experience on that year also. Yeah, it's a great point. We, um, we spent less by um, $80,000 than we had ever spent before. And I know you, there, there's going to be, have to be some extrapolation there that, you know, okay, well, we didn't have this cost or this cost. Even if you add in as many, you know, extra costs to try to kind of say, okay, well, if we had this cost, what would that, but we would have still been under 40, 30 to $40,000. So um, we didn't experience any, you know, extra um, of the concerns um, that, that people are raising. Rob Kehoe then adds to Carlos Samuano's answer. Just one more point on that. And this was of particular importance because the question has come up about the Northern schools being able to play in March and April. And that again was proved very successful that all of the teams above the Mason-Dixon line were able to figure out how to play that spring schedule. So that was another very good example for us to show that the model can work. Nationally and internationally renowned soccer sports writer Stephen Gall from the Washington Post jumped in next with a question. Sash, thanks a lot for doing this. 
why why aren't the women on board with this? And in this era of, of gender equity, gender equality, is that going to become an issue with uh, some of these big picture officials, administrators, et cetera? You will hear Rob Keogh address this question from Stephen Goff first. The Division I women have been engaged in similar conversation for the same number of years, where they're trying to solve the same issues as far as decompression of their season. They're looking at it in a different way at this time, though. They're looking at trying to expand the fall by adding a little bit more on the front side of preseason and a little bit more on the back side to extend to a 14-year season. They actually had a proposal in in 2016 that was in the NCAA cycle. It was withdrawn because there are other elements that had to be solved before they could have that voted on, particularly that you had to move the NCAA championship. But they have the very same reasons. They're just looking at it to try to stay in the fall to get their decompression. But they have also been very supportive of the Division I men's model through the years. They understand the approach there. And we've also had the last two NCAA Division I women's chairs, national chairs, write letters of support for the Division I men's model. Stephen, let me, I'm going to add one more thing to it. I, this is my own opinion. I feel like the women's college game is in a different place than the men's college game. I've mentioned this before. In 1981, when I started as a freshman, there was 200 men's programs. There was 34 women's programs. Now there's 340 women's programs. We still have 200 men's programs. So we are at zero growth in the men's college soccer industry. The women are in a massive state of growth. So the word I use is appetite. You know, it's like if I'm a 70-year-old man, my appetite is a little different than the 30-year-old person. So I know it's a, it's a strange way of looking at it, but that's the reality. I think the women, as Rob mentioned, they're supportive. They're kind of want to wait and see. They'd like to see how ours goes, and, and hopefully we become a good example for them in the future. The next question came from the media asking about how the voting works, whether Sasho felt like he had the votes needed or what needed to be done to secure the votes and maybe even a possible backup plan. I'm going to explain to you how the voting structure works a little bit and where we have uh, room for optimism and we have some room for concern. So if you look at the way the voting structure is, the Division I Council is represented by uh, every single conference in the country. And if you can see the conferences there, the Autonomy Five, the Group of Five, the FCS and the BKS conferences. And I won't go into details of that, uh, but you can see that uh, the Autonomy Five have a weighted vote and the Group of Five have two votes and the rest have only one vote. And then the conference commissioners each have votes. So the group of five, you can see the four votes too, et cetera. And then there's other votes from uh, student athlete representatives, and that's the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee. And then there's a faculty athletic group. The good news in all of this is that right now with the ACC, the Big Ten, and Pac-12 being sponsored institutions, that already gives us 12 votes. We will get the commissioner's vote from the Power Five automatically, which puts us at 16 votes. We already have support from the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee. You may have noticed from the video, uh, a guy named Leon Kraft, an NC State goalkeeper who happened to be on that committee, who presented this information to various student athletes from every sport on that committee. And unlike year 2000, they voted to support our proposal. And then we have the National Faculty Athletic Rep Group has voted to support our proposal as well. 
And we have uh, a leading advocate from Indiana University that helped convince that group that this is in the best interest of the student athletes on an academic side. So that takes us to 18 votes right there. The good news right now that we're working with is the SEC and Big 12, though they don't sponsor men's soccer as an institution, they can weigh in and vote. The two schools in the SEC, Kentucky and South Carolina, both the coaches and student athletes are supportive and we're working hard through that conference to get their votes. The Big 12, which has West Virginia and a recently added University of Central Florida, also has the support of the coaches and student athletes, and we're working with them to get those votes. That then would take us to at least 26 votes of the possible 33. Now, when you do simple math and you look at a number of these conferences, there are seven votes of non-soccer sponsoring institutions. Our hope is to convince those, those particular uh, conferences, excuse me, not institutions, uh, our hope is to convince them to abstain, which then would bring the denominator down from 64 to uh, 57, and then we would only need 29 votes to pass. You need a simple majority to pass. So we have some optimism, but we have some work to do to get the Big 12 and SEC fully on board. And then within the group of five conferences, we're confident that three of those conferences will support, we only need two of them. So we have some optimism. However, uh, we have a lot of work to do. We're working at it. We're still running into uh, some challenges, as Steve mentioned, the question about where the women stand is certainly one we hear all the time. And maybe our biggest challenge, quite frankly, is still this idea of change. One thing we've all learned about the NCAA is that uh, it's a massive institution and it doesn't have the flexibility to change very proactively. Uh, the majority of change within the NCAA, uh, at least in my involvement for the past 40 years, has always been either led by number one, money sports, uh, number two, lawsuits, number three, media pressure. The only three ways that I have seen the NCAA actively change. Uh, we have here in front of us an incredible proactive solution to a real problem of student athlete well-being, and this is why we've called our model, it's for the players and for the game. We think it's, this is a perfect model. This is a transformational model that we think is a perfect solution to show a proactive approach to doing the right thing within the NCAA. The follow-up question, again, directed to Sasha Soroski was, okay, if you don't get the vote, so you just come back to it in a year or two, what do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. We're going to play in this model. There's no doubt in my mind. My hope is we pass it on April 13th. And the reason I say that is that as we sit here and speak, the NCAA is going to transform. And there will be, at some point, a place where the Power Five will dictate the direction things will go into. The Power Five conferences, the Autonomy Five, are asking for more and more autonomy. With all of the seismic shift within the NCAA right now with the uh, name, image, likeness movement, the Alston Supreme Court decision, the conference realignment that is happening, uh, there will be a point where the Power Five will dictate everything that happens. So it's a weighted vote now, but it, at some point it will be full autonomy. And because this is led by three of the of the, of the big Power Five conferences that play college soccer, I'm confident we will move into that. My hope is that everyone that plays Division One soccer can play in this model. Once again, Rob Keogh would add on. Well, the other thing on that presently by way of bylaw from the NCAA is if a proposal gets defeated, there's 
has a two-year moratorium before it could be resubmitted. And so under the present structure, that's what we're dealing with now. But as Sash mentioned, there's the transformational committee working to implement changes in the NCAA. So right now, two-year moratorium, if it doesn't pass, but that could change also. Taylor went through the, the list of some of the sports that the NCAA has worked to modernize the approach of. Have you gotten any sort of sense why there's been such apathy towards college soccer up until this stage? Again, it, it's, uh, we're reasonably irrelevant within the scheme of the NCAA, and it, it's, it's terrible to say, but, but because uh, our championships are not what they should be, we haven't garnered the, the type of attention that we deserve. Uh, this is the most popular sport in the world. It is the, uh, you know, the most popular participant, if not top two in this country, and we're frustrated by that. But this is the way the NCAA works. It took tennis uh, and track and field almost 10 years to get to the point where they actually play a very similar season that we're asking for right now. So unfortunately, you know, we, we have been pragmatic and we've tried to approach this the correct way, but I think things have become actually harder to change within the NCAA rather than easier over time because of what I call the institutionalized pattern that the NCAA has been living in. We do have some good examples where there's been positive change and we still feel very confident that we will get to the finish line. Patricia Hughes speaks next. This is Trish. I'm the director of college programs at United Soccer Coaches. When we completed the Kaplan Gender Equity Review as required by the NCAA, it was inevitable that they would say there was very little inequity between the men and the women's game on the college landscape. But one of our arguments is that when we talk about sameness, sameness doesn't constitute equity. When we look at how soccer is treated up and down the, the, the tiered sports model within the NCAA, which you know soccer hasn't been given a holistic review end-to-end or a deep dive hasn't been completed in many, many years. When originally soccer was um, integrated into the NCAA where coaches were maybe coaching a, a fall sport, which was soccer and a spring sport, the game has modernized and moved on. And this archaic model that continues to exist within the NCAA really needs an overhaul and a review. And that was our argument when we went through phase two of the Kaplan review is that when, when you have a softball player, a baseball player, a women's soccer player sitting at the same lunch table from the same institution, their championship and their season experiences are anything but similar. It is tiered. It is, it is not the same. And we continue to advocate and argue that our ability to create a new model that enhances the student-athlete experience in a more balanced and holistic way will only benefit the student-athlete. And when you tie that in with the petition data that shows where we have over you know, 3,500 men soccer player um, who have signed on this petition stating that they support this new model. Um, you know, our hope is that the NCAA will open their eyes and their ears and listen to what is being spoken to by, by the very student athletes who will be engaged in this new model. Those are important numbers for you guys to jot down. We send you the petition results of the national petition drive. But, you know, over the last five years, you know, as part of that Sports Science Institute uh, that we, we had in 2015, in 2016, the NCAA did a time demand study. Everybody was asked the question, all sports, would you like to play over two semesters? And men's soccer was the only sport that said they would like to spread their season out. So they shouldn't have to worry about other sports wanting to join in. 73% of our kids said we'd like to play over two semesters. Now, this was not the detailed 21st century model. In 2017, NSCA with, with Rob, we had a survey and we had 80% of the student athletes and 92% of the coaches supporting it. 
recently we have almost 86% of the student athletes actually signed the petition on the merits and detail of this model saying this is what they want to do. To me, that is unbelievable. The NCAA must listen to, or not NCAA, our leadership at our universities, in the conferences, and the national leadership must listen to the voice of 86% of the current student athletes. That is a massive number. And I think that number needs to get out there. You can't say you care about student athlete well-being and not act positively the actual voice of the student athletes who are saying this is a better, a better model for our experience as a student athlete playing the sport they love. UNC's Carlos Samuano would add to Sasha's point. I think it's super important to consider how this legislative process works. We showed you how the votes work, but the, the reality is it comes down to a school by school. You got to tick off one school at a time. So in order to get a conference, you get got to get the majority of the schools in that conference to vote for it. And so once we start socializing what we're doing, what we've learned over the years is that there's a significant proportion of the population that doesn't really know what we do in, in college soccer or how that compares to what we want to do. And so some of the assumptions are being made on campuses that, you know, oh, well, you guys are going to try to play, the, do what you do in the fall twice, and that's just going to be they, – they don't take enough time. They haven't taken enough time, or it hasn't been socialized well enough by us, one of the two, I mean, we, we've tried, to get it out there and get people's attention to what we're actually trying to do versus what we're currently doing. And so it's really just ticking off one school at a time, and that's the challenge of getting through this through the legislative process. So the language I always hear is that, why won't the NCAA? And, and I always say, well, it's, there's not an NCAA making a decision. There's a committee representing the schools, and then the schools have to be educated. And, and so when we try to get this out and try to get the voice of soccer to be heard, it's not always at the top of the list. So every, everything we can do to magnify the voice and magnify what we're trying to do so that it is heard is critical to this, this, um, uh, this vote. So I've often said it should be the biggest no-brainer of all time. <laughs> uh, it, it's, you know, when we speak to people and, and once you explain the model, uh, the majority of, of people will see the common sense uh, approach to it. And as Carlos mentioned, um, you know, it's, we, we've shown it's, it's probably budget neutral. The players are here both semesters. They're already playing, training uh, during that time. They already need support from staff, academic, sports medicine, all of those. They're already on campus. And, and Steve, to your point, I want to I chime in on something. One of the beauties of our proposal is that we actually want to have the kids have the full summer off. We want to be done by whatever, mid-May, early June. If you play in the finals, you'll be the first weekend of June. But we want them to have the whole summer off. Right now, uh, there are some proposals that we're actually not a part of to provide summer access for the kids so they, so they come here in the summer and play. Uh, we're a sport with the lowest scholarship amount as a percentage of starting lineup or roster size. We're a sport that has not screened bloody murder through the public, we're a sport that has not sued anybody. We're a sport that has actually tried to do things the absolute right way within the current constraints for all the right reasons. And yet we're a sport that sometimes doesn't get a very good voice. 
So we've worked very, very hard to ask our kids to chime in. They have 86% want this model. We have got the three most powerful conferences to sponsor this proposal. After spending years and doing deep dives because they agree this is the right thing to do. It now it's just very important for people in leadership positions at various conferences and schools to really do right for their own players. The numbers don't lie. The solution is pragmatic. And it is time you know, for, for this information to get out that this is the right thing to do. The next question was about the pro pathway from college and how a college season that extends into late May and June would affect entry into Major League Soccer and other professional leagues. We have uh, spoken to, uh, to MLS even from the start of this proposal many years ago, and we've had continual discussions with leadership within MLS, from Todd Durbin to Aleko Eskandar and to Ali Curtis now. And we have formed a working group. We've had several conversations already with them on the best pathway for players from college into MLS via the draft. And we haven't settled on a solution, but there is a good appetite to work towards a very good solution that will be good for the colleges and good for the players and good for MLS. So we've had that discussion, but obviously with the season, MLS season starting in basically end of January, and our season not culminate until sometime in, in mid-May. We certainly do not want to lose our best players to the pro ranks, but we also cannot stop players that may want to leave at a certain time. So the simple answer is we've all agreed to have a working group once this passes. We have 14 months before the season starts. This uh, 21st century model, if it's voted for approval in April, will not start until fall of 2023. We have some time to work out all the details, and we will work out the details. Feel free to reach out to any of us on this call independently. You should, have, you should have the emails or conversations if you want to do any follow-up. With that, I want to thank everybody for taking the time to participate on the call. Once again, on April 13, the NCAA Division I Council will be voting to approve a fall-spring season, the 21st century model for men's soccer. I want to thank Maryland's Sasho Sarosky, UNC's Carlos Samuano, Rob Kehoe, the former director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches, Patricia Hughes, the new director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches, Alexi Lalas, Taylor Twelman, and all the great members of the media for their outstanding questions. As Sasha mentioned, if you want more information about this vote and the 21st century model, please reach out to Sasha or Carlos or Trish or Rob or any of the great leaders of the men's Division I game. For our producer, Colin Thrash from United Soccer Coaches, Bailey Conklin and Brandon Milburn, I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. Thanks for listening to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. To learn more about League Apps, find them at leagueapps.com or as League Apps on all of the social networks. And to learn more about United Soccer Coaches, visit us at unitedsoccercoaches.org.